I'm going to be reading this morning in the book of Psalms, chapter 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you after having a series we had we've had five family weddings this summer and I've uh, been to for weddings in Phoenix a couple in Oregon and a couple here and anyway I'm glad to be back here with you I want to begin this morning by asking you to imagine what it would be like to be Michael Jordan's son Michael Jordan the great basketball player imagine what it would be like to grow up in that house and initially you would just see him, right, as daddy. I mean, he's the one who gets down on the floor and plays with you and uh, pours your Cheerios in the morning. You would see him as daddy. Then over time, you'd maybe have some aha moments to say, wait a minute, people are treating him differently and he's really good at basketball. And then probably at some point you'd have an aha moment where you would realize wow, he's probably the greatest basketball player that ever played the game. You see, your awe of him would grow over time. Well, our relationship with Christ is a lot like that, I think. We put our faith in him, we come to Christ, and we begin to trust him as Lord but, and Savior, but we don't really know him very well initially. And over time... We have aha moments where suddenly we begin to see Jesus more and more for who he really is in all his awesomeness and glory. And in fact, those aha moments should never stop all the way through our lives until we go be with Jesus forever in heaven with him. Why? Because really our spiritual growth is based on how well we know Jesus how well we understand him for who he really is. All of us have a far inadequate view of Jesus. We just don't see him for all that he is. And spiritual growth is understanding more and more who he is over time. That's why Paul says, this is my goal, this is what I press on towards, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him and I want to enter in to all that he is, his power and his sufferings. Because in that is our spiritual growth. 
The more we see him, the more we grow and become like him. Our view of Jesus determines our spiritual health. Our view of Jesus determines our spiritual health. So the clearer you see him, the more you will be like him. And we can never plumb the full depths of who he is. Well, today we're looking at Psalm 110. Psalm 110, I think, gives a wonderful picture of who Jesus is. It's an opportunity to have an aha moment. In fact, that's my prayer for all of us, that we might see him a little more clearly for who he is in all his awesomeness as king, as priest. This psalm, this short little psalm, is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other chapter of the Bible. Bruce Walkey, the Old Testament theologian, says this, Psalm 110 has played the most important role in the history of Christian doctrine because of its profound Christology. Now, that's a big theological word. That just means what it teaches us about Christ, about Jesus. This short seven verses has impacted Christian doctrine perhaps more than any other passage. So that's my prayer. That as we study this psalm together, that you might see Jesus in a new light. And that as a result, you and I might be changed. So let's pray before we look into this word together. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are, our Lord Jesus. And we acknowledge that our view of you is far inadequate. We need to see you more clearly. So as we look at this psalm together, may your spirit open our eyes to see you in all your glory. And may it change the way we live because we see you for who you really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to note, first of all, the superscription of this psalm. That's that little line before the psalm actually begins. It says, a psalm of David. That means that this psalm was written by the ideal king. All of Israel still today, the Jews today, but all through history, they've looked at David as the ideal king. He's the one who established the kingdom as a holy kingdom, the kingdom of God, the ruler of Israel. And so he is the ideal king. And he says this, he begins this way, the Lord says to my Lord. Now I want to remind you of something. Some of you may have forgotten this or you may not know this. When you see the word Lord in most translations, if it's all in capitals, Okay, that stands for the Hebrew name of Yahweh. God's name, Yahweh. The name that God said, this is who I am when he talked to Moses in Exodus. When, when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, say, I am. Yahweh means I am. The all-existent one, the personal covenant God of Israel. So that represents the Father. Lord of lords, King of kings, he is the Lord. And David, the ideal king, writes this. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. 
So David's saying, whoever he's talking to is David's Lord. So David is prophesying about one who would come, who would be a descendant of David, the Messiah. But somehow this descendant of David would not be equal with David, which is what the Jews expected Messiah to be. But he would actually be far greater. He would be Lord. He would be essentially God himself. What does this mean when he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, Jesus actually tells us because he quotes this psalm in Matthew chapter 22 where he says this, beginning in verse 41, he's getting ready for the cross. He's trying to challenge their view of him like he's trying to challenge our view of him that we might see him for who he really is. Chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 41, he says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, he's the son of David. That's what the prophecies say. He's the son of David, descended, essentially equal with David. So Jesus said to them, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? If he's equal, how can he be Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. He quotes this psalm. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Why? Because he put them in their place. He says, according to this psalm, it shows that Jesus is more than just Messiah. He is God himself. He is deity. He is the king established forever. He is equal with Yahweh. Yahweh, the true God, seats him at his right hand and gives him the scepter, his authority, makes him the ruler over all. In other words, gives him his name, his authority, his position. He is God himself. And the Israelites wouldn't admit that. The Jews wouldn't admit that. The Pharisees wouldn't admit that. And that's why they wouldn't ask him another question. Because they couldn't admit that that Jesus could be God himself. This is a beautiful picture here in the Old Testament of the Trinity Itself, where the Father, Yahweh, is speaking to the Son and he establishes him as king over all, gives him the, his authority forever, that intimacy, that glimpse we get into heaven of the Father and the Son communicating with one another. And he establishes him as his co-regent, as his king. He shares his power with no one except Jesus and the Spirit. One God in three persons. Well, this psalm, as I said, is quoted throughout the the New Testament more than any other Old Testament chapter, and it's often used, this passage, to emphasize how Jesus really is God. For example, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, verse 3, is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand. A reference to Psalm 110. 
And later in the chapter, he quotes it exactly, verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies that footstool for your feet? The author of Hebrews is arguing from Psalm 110 that Jesus is God and we have proof in this chapter. So this chapter is powerful. It reflects for us that Jesus is God himself and he is king, establishes king at God's right hand, the Father's right hand. What do we learn about Jesus as king? Well, for one, he's commissioned by Yahweh, right? Yahweh says, hey, come, I'm commissioning you, I'm appointing you as king by Yahweh himself. Yahweh has the authority to give Jesus his very name. Now imagine a tourist going to Muammar Gaddafi in Libya today. A tourist going up to him and saying, you know, Muammar buddy, I really think you ought to stop bombing your own people. I just think that would be a good idea. Do you think Muammar would listen to that? Probably not. I mean, we probably wouldn't see that tourist again. (laughs) But if Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who carries the authority of the President of the United States and the entire army of the United States, goes to Muammar Gaddafi and says, you know, I really think you ought to stop bombing your own people. See, if Muammar Gaddafi has any wisdom at all, that's a good question, but if he does... He should listen, right? Because there's authority. Jesus has been given that authority, the authority of Yahweh, God himself. And so everything that Jesus says is something we ought to listen to. When he speaks or acts, he does so in the full authority of Yahweh himself. Because he's been given all Yahweh's authority, when it says that he's given him his strong scepter, he's given the very reigning staff of the king, all Yahweh's authority and power at his right hand. And so Yahweh says, rule in the midst of your enemies. What does that mean? It means not just Jesus, when he rose from the dead and was seated at the right hand of the Father, that he reigns in heaven. No, he reigns in the midst of his enemies. He reigns here on earth. Sometimes we think, you know, well, he's going to be king someday. Someday he'll establish his kingdom. No, it's here now. He is reigning. Now, it hasn't been fully realized yet, his kingdom, and we long for that day. Come soon, Lord Jesus. But his kingdom is already here, and it is spreading. His power, he's driving out evil in people's lives individually, in this world, calling people forth to be his people He's doing amazing things right now. And the Father, Yahweh, has promised victory. He says, rule, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you realize that's a promise? I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. (laughs) Now what does footstool mean? What is that picture? Well, think about that. A footstool, you rest your feet on it in your lounge chair. It's beneath you. It's a sign of complete subjection. Dr. Bruce Walke says this, the royal footstool, a part of the throne, symbolizes power and authority. A victor making his enemies his footstool depicts the victor's complete power and authority over them. 
On the young King Tut's footstool, which was found, King Tut, the Egyptian king, and we found so much in his tomb, on his footstool are representations of foreign captives prostrate with their hands behind their backs to depict symbolically his enemies are already bound and under his feet. Yahweh is promising to Jesus a day is coming when all enemies will be completely, finally defeated. He's already defeating enemies. The kingdom is expanding, but there will be that final day that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says this, starting in verse 24. Then comes the end when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign, he's reigning now, but he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. We long for that day, don't we? But the point is, he is reigning now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, establishing his authority. But we look forward to that day. I, I picture, I love that scene at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy where they're making this last stand and the army of King Aragorn is there and they're surrounded by enemies, by the hordes of Sauron. Things look bad. But the ring drops into Mount Doom and suddenly the evil hordes are just completely destroyed, wiped out, finally. And the army of Aragorn is saved. That's the picture of what is coming. We long for that day. What else do we know about this king from this psalm? Well, verse 3 tells us that he will have a holy army that accompanies him. Let me read that again. Your people, who is that? That's us, folks. We are the army. We are the followers of Christ. We are his people. We'll volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. We are us. We are the army. Everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, he calls for it to be his army. We're willing. We're eager. We're a voluntary army. We put our faith in Christ, and as a result, he calls us forth to help fight the battle, to defeat evil in our lives and in our world around us. And he says he gives us holy clothing. In holy array, it says, that's priestly clothing. Because we can't go into a battle and fight evil without his holiness placed on us. It's not what we earn or what we do. It's not because we do it all right. It's because he's given us his righteousness as a gift. Whenever you fight evil, sometimes the Satan will tell you, the enemy will tell you, you're not worthy, you don't have it together, God can't use you, you're inadequate, you're a failure, you sin too much. But no, we have a God who's given us through his holy priesthood, Jesus, his high priest, holy garments. And that's who we are. We are a holy people, a holy army who come from the womb of the dawn, it says. That describes, it's an interesting phrase, but it really means like the womb, the beginning, the birth of the dawn, the beginning of a new age. When Jesus rose from the dead, ascended, on high to the right hand of the Father. 
a whole new age began. The kingdom of God was established. And you and I were made part of that when we put our faith in Christ. We're part of a whole new age. We are new creations in Him. We're given holy garments and we are given the weapons that He's given us to defeat evil around us. And that last little phrase, your youth are to you as the dew. Pictures that no matter how old we are, (laughs) we have His power like powerful youth that have all their strength and we are like the dew. Now, I think it's important we understand what he means by that phrase, like the dew. Now, we have some dew here in Idaho, but it's not the same as Israel. It's a powerful image to someone who's been there and understands, because in Israel, it rains for about six months quite a bit, and then for six months, pretty much every year, it doesn't rain. And all the vegetation, naturally, that's not irrigated, would die if it wasn't for the dew. But Israel has a tremendous amount of dew that wets everything and actually waters the plants as it comes every night. So David picks up on that imagery and he says, the people of God are like dew, bringing life everywhere they go, bringing life to a dark and dreary and desert world around us. We are called as the army of God to voluntarily follow him to defeat the enemy, to bring life wherever we go because we have his life in us. What an amazing picture. David is a thousand years before Christ looking into the future. One is coming, one of my descendants, but he's going to be greater than me. He will be God himself. He will create an army. He will do amazing things. He sees dimly what we can see clearly. That amazing time when Jesus rose from the dead and was seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that's an amazing event. It's interesting to me that we don't celebrate that day. The official church holiday is Ascension Day. How many of you ever have ever celebrated Ascension Day? Not very many, right? But in other traditions, other countries even, like England, for example, it's a holiday, it's a national holiday. Because that was the day, 40 days after Easter, after Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father and his kingdom was established. And then 10 days later, the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Ascension is a day that, you know what, I'd love to see us celebrate because it's one of the key holidays for us as Christians. So David sees dimly, he looks into the future, but we look back at the time when Jesus rose from the dead, was seated at the right hand of the Father when he ascended, was given all power, calls forth an army, and we are part of that army, called forth to, with Jesus, defeat evil in our lives, depending on his strength and his authority as king and to defeat evil around us in our culture by trusting Him, following Him, living for Him. An amazing picture of Jesus given all authority and of us as His followers, as His army. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on to say another vision he had connected with this. Verse 4, The Lord has sworn the oath of Yahweh. Again, this is the name Yahweh, all in caps. 
Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, the Messiah, are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh says, not only will he be king, but he will be priest, an eternal priest forever and ever. Now this is very significant. Again, in the Old Testament, the priesthood was very important. There were two key offices, the king and the priest. But they were separate. Okay? The king came from the tribe of Judah, right? The priesthood came from the tribe of Levi. But both were necessary. They needed a king to rule over them and lead them and protect them. But they also needed a priest who would be the mediator between them and God. And every time they sinned, they could go to the priest and do a sacrifice. And there were sacrifices every day, even when people didn't come, because there was this barrier between us and God. Our sin kept us from Him. God is holy and perfect and we're not. And so in the Old Testament, there were constantly sacrifices. Thousands of animals were sacrificed. But now David looks forward to a time when there would be a priest that would be a priest forever that would free us from that need to sacrifice. That would die for our sin and be the eternal sacrifice for us and then stand as the mediator between us and God forever so that every time you and I sin, if we put our faith in Christ, every time we sin, we don't have to do a sacrifice. Now for us, we don't kill animals, right? But I see a lot of us as Christians doing sacrifices. Oh, I blew it, so I need to get my act together. I need to work hard. I need to read my Bible more so that God will accept me back. But, but what David is saying is that Yahweh has established Jesus as an eternal priest that covers our sin once for all. So every time you sin and you come to the Father and say, Lord, he says, forget it. Jesus already covered that. Jesus already talked to me about that. It's done. Now follow me. Let's get on with the war. <laughs> Let's defeat the enemy. He's been established forever, it says. All the Old Testament priests died. They didn't live long. But he lives forever according to the order, it says, like Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is a mysterious person in the Bible. He is only mentioned three times in the Bible. Genesis 14, here in Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews, which essentially is a commentary on Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And he's mentioned a number of times in Hebrews because he's expanding on what this means. Now back in Genesis, let me just read the three verses in Genesis 14 that where he is mentioned for the first time in the Bible. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 18. Abraham has just gone and defeated the kings, these enemy kings that had come and taken his nephew Lot. He defeated them, and as he's coming back, verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Abram gave him a tenth of all the spoils. And that's it. 
That's all we know about Melchizedek. It says he's a priest of God Most High, but we don't know his background. We don't know where he came from. There's nothing else in the Bible about him other than what is in Hebrews since this psalm. So he's kind of this mysterious character, and David refers to him here, but the author of Hebrews picks up and he says, you know, Jesus is like Melchizedek in these ways. Melchizedek has no beginning and no end that we can see. We're just not told where he came from. Jesus is like that. Why? He's always existed as God forever. No beginning and no end. He's also one who was mysteriously king of Salem and yet priest to most holy God. King and priest. Now, wait a minute. That wasn't even acceptable in the Old Testament. In fact, David knew that Saul, his king, the king before David, had lost his kingship and it was given to David because Saul tried to act as priest. He did a sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. David knew that, and yet he says, but my descendant, the one who's coming, I, I see it in the future, will be both king and priest. He will cover everything. He will be Lord, and he'll deal with sin. He'll be our mediator. This is amazing. And if you read Hebrews, you'll see that. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. It's basically a commentary on these passages. So this mysterious Melchizedek is a picture for us of who Jesus is. Our priest forever. We don't need a priest anymore. Interesting that God has never let the temple be rebuilt after it was destroyed in A.D. 70. The Jews have been trying to rebuild it ever since. Some Christians have been trying to rebuild it ever since. But isn't it interesting that God has not allowed that to happen? Why? Because we don't need more sacrifices we have an eternal high priest who gave his life as our sacrifice. The awesomeness of who, God, of who Jesus is as king and priest means he's covered everything. We don't need animal sacrifices. We don't need to get our act together to be acceptable to God. Though we, I know we feel that. We feel guilt. But when you fail, when you sin... Come to him, confess it, and just receive forgiveness as a gift because we have a high priest who has dealt with our sin. He's always there interceding for us. Well, what's the result of this? What is life like then? What, what should we expect if he is our king priest? Verse 5 through 7, I think, show us. It's a beautiful picture, really, of the battle raging now, wait a minute. Jesus is a kind shepherd, right? He's the God of love. The Old Testament, you know, that's, that, he was the battle guy. But the New Testament, Jesus, he's, he's, you know, this loving shepherd who guides us on our way. You know what Jesus is? But he's also a warrior king. And that's, I think, where we need to have an aha moment and realize Jesus is a king who is at war. Listen to these words. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter their heads, literally. He will smash their heads over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's a picture 
of you and I being at war. We are constantly in a battle. Don't you feel that in your life? I mean, you, you always want somewhere to get to a place of rest, right? And we're always wanting that and striving for that. But the truth is, we are always in the midst of the battle. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are at war against evil constantly. We want to see Jesus as loving and kind, and he is. But the Old Testament and the New Testament expands our view of him as this mighty warrior king priest who is reigning right now, who is defeating his enemies. Now you may say, I don't feel that much in my life. Where is he reigning? How is he battling for me? How is he destroying the enemy and crushing the heads of our enemies? Well, let me give you a couple examples. As you look back on your life, have you seen sin defeated, areas of struggle in your life that have changed? I hope you have. That only happens through the power of the king, defeating evil in your own life and around you. Do you know why our society hasn't completely collapsed in, and been destroyed by evil? It's because he is reigning he has people, Christians, throughout our culture living out their faith and it's sustaining this world that is such a mess. What's the fastest growing religion in the world today? You know, the media would have us believe it's Islam. That's not true at all. Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world. Now it's fairly stable in the Western world, okay? Europe, America, Australia, New Zealand, the Western world. It's been fairly stable. In 1960, of all the Christians in the world, if you look at all the Christians of the world, there were twice as many in the Western world, United States, Canada, Europe, etc., as in the rest of the world. Today, it's been estimated that of all the Christians in the world, there are seven times as many in the non-Western world as in here. Just in the last 50 years. It's changed that much. Why? Because Jesus is defeating evil in Africa, in South America, all through Asia. There are many coming to Christ through miracles, through dreams. Muslims are coming to Christ. It's the fastest expanding religion because God is fighting his battle through Jesus Christ and expanding his kingdom. So see, whether it's here on the home front or out there, he is reigning. He is defeating the enemy, destroying his power and expanding the kingdom. So what does this mean for us practically? As we live our daily lives, what does it mean to us that he is king-priest? Well, it means that we can trust him to defeat evil. He has power over it. He's been given by Yahweh all power. I don't know what your battle is in life, but all of us are in the midst of the battle. Maybe you're struggling to just believe in Jesus. Maybe you've never actually come to faith. My encouragement to you is to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, fight this battle for me. Help me understand you to see you as you really are, to trust you for who you really are. Maybe your battle is simply that you're struggling with 
areas of sin in your life and you're battling and you just are really having a tough time in that battle with addictions, with lust, with um, selfishness, pride, whatever it might be. If Jesus is king, then that means he's the one who needs to defeat those enemies for you. Now, keep struggling against them. Put all your energy against it, but trust him. Look to him to give you the power to defeat it, to begin to live differently, to put off sin. Maybe where you are battling today is you're learning to trust God and walk with him and serve him, but you're overwhelmed by your own inadequacy. Let him fight that battle for you. He is the king and priest who has forgiven you and will empower you. So look to him to defeat those enemies. Maybe for you, the battle you're facing these days especially is that you just see areas in your life in which you still, deep down in your heart, at a very deep level, you're holding on to idols. The idols maybe of wanting people's approval. Maybe the idols of wanting to be in control of your own life. Uh, The idols of wanting pleasure, wanting to feel good. Whatever it might be, your idols that you hold on to. If he is king priest, turn to him and plead with him to take away those idols, to do whatever it takes to take those away so that you can be working with him to defeat the enemy. He calls us to join in this war to defeat evil, to use the weapons he's given us of prayer, the word, faith, love, sacrifice. He's already won the victory. He is the king priest overall. So trust in him forever. I want to close by reading how Paul describes this establishment of him, this ascension of him in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 through 11, where he says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You know what that name is? It's Yahweh. He shared his name with him. Yahweh, Lord. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing picture David has as he looks into the future a thousand years of you, Lord Jesus, receiving full authority as king, as priest. We want this to make a difference in our everyday lives, Lord. May we live our lives in a way that reflects your authority over us. May we be your army, eager, following you, stepping out to defeat evil in our lives, in our culture, in those around us, through prayer, through the word, through faith. Thank you that you reign. Give us eyes to see your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.